Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Good morning and welcome to Connecting Vets Daily, brought to you by Intercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day is the slogan and it's what we do and we start it off each day right here doing this. Coming up on today's edition of Connecting Vets Daily, we are going to talk to the Service Women's Action Network about their latest initiatives, the latest points of interest that they are focusing on when it comes to the women who have worn the uniform of our United States Armed Forces. Our Libby House spoke to them, and we're going to play that interview for you today. And then we're also going to have Steph Mullen. Research Director for IAVA in studio. She's going to talk to us about a number of things, including their big uh, gala that they had in New York City recently. Also uh, about some issues regarding that mass shooting out in Thousand Oaks, California, of course, by an ex-Marine, as the Commandant of the Marine Corps put it. There's a lot of stuff that we're going to talk to her about, and that is coming up a little while later on in today's show. But first, let's get things kicked off by checking out what's going on in the news. Of course, this weekend, big thing happened. I kind of expected this to happen. It's 72. It's 72 in Florida. It's not 72 in the the rest of the country. Yeah, thanks for reminding me. Saturday Night Live. Of course, last week we talked quite a bit about Dan Crenshaw uh, being made fun of by Pete Davidson on there. A lot of people taking exception to that. Crenshaw saying, hey, I've got a pretty thick skin. I'd prefer if people uh, made fun of veterans for uh, something other than their war wounds uh, and did not do that. I kind of expected that Crenshaw was going to show up on SNL this weekend. And that's exactly what happened with Pete Davidson giving an apology and then Crenshaw coming out on stage and, of course, a bunch of jokes at Davidson's expense, including uh, playing Dan Crenshaw's ringtone and it turning out to be an Ariana Grande song uh, and then saying that Pete uh, Davidson looks like Martin Short in one of the Christmas movies. Hey, Patrick. Patrick (laughs) Patrick actually watching us this morning from Afghanistan. We're serving with the Belgian military over there. Thanks so much for tuning in, my friend. So an interesting story in that last week, of course, outrage culture, everybody all upset. I I didn't feel like I needed to defend Dan Crenshaw because he's very capable of defending himself. And of course, his reaction to what Davidson did and what SNL did was kind of perfect. A lot of people who were unaware of Dan Crenshaw became aware of him through his response to what Pete Davidson did on SNL, Uh, certainly bumped up his public profile. And now this appearance there where he showed, you know, hey, uh, that that they have, um, you know, the ability to go back and forth and beat Davidson. Not a bad guy, as we said last week. You know, he's just a guy. It's kind of kind of what he does, kind of says dumb things and. Uh, can sometimes get his uh, foot stuck in his mouth occasionally when it comes to things like making fun of a war hero and a legitimate one, someone who lost one eye to an IED, almost lost the other, underwent 
a, uh, a breakthrough surgery that actually saved that other eye but could have caused him his sight totally. And then, of course, uh, Crenshaw lucky to be alive after that IED blast, which killed the interpreter that was in front of him, wounded several of the Marines that were with him when he was down there. Um, you know, it is what it is. And it's nice to see people able to sit there with each other and uh, kind of, you know, do the apology thing and then let Dan Crenshaw get some measure of revenge back towards Pete Davidson. And of course, it came on, well, the eve of Veterans Day. I suppose, depending on what time it aired during Saturday Night Live, it could have actually been on Veterans Day. Saturday Night Live starts at like 1130, right? The majority of the show takes place after midnight, actually technically on Sunday. So is what it is with that. But it was nice to see. Um, of course, you had some people uh, saying, no, what is SNL doing? They're platforming a right wing nut job and all this other. Just allow something to be nice and allow two people who uh, were in the news cycle because one of them made fun of the other one to have a moment with each other uh, before going back to your partisan political attacks. That's the only thing I would ask of people. But, hey, nobody's going to listen to me. Taking a look around the news of the active duty military, it appears that a Master Sergeant Nicholas Volweiler of Sailorsburg, Pennsylvania, 35 years old, serving in the Air Force and was deployed to Japan. He apparently was found unconscious in his off-base residence in Tachikawa, Tokyo, and later pronounced dead at a nearby hospital. Fuji TV reports that 27-year-old Arya Saito has admitted to stabbing Volweiler, with whom she was in a relationship at around 8 p.m., she reportedly told police they have been arguing because he wanted to break up with her. This is being reported by Air Force Times. Master Sergeant Volwheeler was a truly valued airman of Team Yakota, and he will be dearly missed by our community, said Colonel Otis Jones, 374th Airlift Wing Commander, in a news release from that unit. His family, friends, fellow defenders, and all of the Yakota community are in our prayers during this heartbreaking time. Um, yeah, so apparently there was a, an argument there, domestic dispute, and ends up with a uh, a Master Sergeant being killed over in um Japan, and he was a security forces squadron, so that's essentially uh, what you would think of with like MPs in the army or MAs in the navy, all of those things. Killed by his girlfriend in Japan, a place that's uh, you know known to be pretty safe, a uh, very safe place generally, I would say, but apparently not for the master sergeant, who again was found dead in his apartment, the apparent victim of a stabbing related to a domestic violence or domestic dispute issue, I should say. Taking a look at some more heartwarming news, Purple Hearts Reunited. We've had the founder of Purple Hearts Reunited, Zach Fike, here on the program before, and they had another one of their amazing ceremonies this past Friday. Our own Matt Sainsing from ConnectingVets.com went over to check it out, and they reunited medals with the families of World War I veterans. Of course, that war coming to an end a century ago. Armistice Day, which was the forebearer of Veterans Day here in the United States, uh, and Armistice Day is still being celebrated by many countries around the world, as, as Patrick just chimed in on our Facebook Live broadcast. They had a great Armistice Day celebrating over in Afghanistan. Well, on two days before Armistice Day or Veterans Day, Purple Hearts Reunited gathered the families of five World War I veterans and got back the awards that were meant for them. Again, these are... 
medals that come up missing for various reasons. We've learned from talking to Zach Fike. It may be that something uh, was misplaced. It may be that something was put into a box when they were moving, put into a storage unit, forgotten about. There are so many reasons that can lead to these Purple Heart medals coming up missing. And the stories of them getting back to their families are always delightful. And we actually have a little breakdown of who these World War I veterans were whose families received those medals. You have First Lieutenant Jason Hunt, one of 25 soldiers to learn how to fly in July of 1917. By the time he made it overseas, his job was to engage in clear enemy aircraft to make the skies safer for friendly bombers and reconnaissance planes. Now, on August 1st, he was flying over a sector of northern France with five other planes to protect an intelligence collection aircraft that was taking pictures of those positions on the western front. The American planes were inside enemy territory and 20 German aircraft commanded by Manfred von Richthofen, that, of course, being the Red Baron. All but one of the American planes was shot down, and it is believed that Hunt was instantly killed, though he is still listed as missing in action. His nephew, Howard Scott of Englewood, Florida, received his uncle's Purple Heart along with some of their extended family. The second oldest Purple Heart yet, Joe, Army Sergeant Gaetano Alferi, was awarded Purple Heart number 90, the second earliest such medal that Purple Hearts Reunited has come across, subsequent only to Purple Heart number 1, which was awarded to General Douglas MacArthur. So anyway, century later, details of his service are not as complete as others at the ceremony, but some pretty cool stuff going on over there. His grandson, David Lieberman of Tewksbury, Mass., was the one who took in that World War I Purple Heart Medal for the family. The only British veteran honored at the ceremony was Lieutenant Commander Duncan Drucker of the British Royal Air Corps. Uh, he and his co-pilot were uh, said to have been in an aerial engagement with the Red Baron for half an hour. Red Baron popping up a couple times. His great-nephew, Neil Drucay of Norman, Oklahoma, received those medals. Par Private Leo Kammeyer of Cold Springs, Minnesota, one of 13 children. Uh, his medals were taken to his granddaughter, Rhonda Van Vliet of Brookings, Oregon, or given, I should say, presented. They do a great job with these present presentations. Uh, and then you've got another one, Lieutenant Colonel Joseph D. Murray of the United States Marine Corps, who was set to France at the outset of the Great War. Uh, he was killed near Soissons in northeastern France. Um, not quit, not killed. Sorry, he was shot in the head, but survived and survived the war, retiring in 1932, passed away in 1941, buried in Arlington. Um, his her his granddaughter received the Purple Heart from Purple Hearts Reunited, who, again, do a fantastic, fantastic job of giving these beautiful presentations to the families. I had the honor of being asked to actually read one of the citations at a Purple Hearts Reunited uh, event and the displays that are given to the families are absolutely beautiful. You know, they take the actual medal. They take uh, photos of the service member if they have them, news clippings in some cases, or in the case of the sailor who I read the uh, citation for, they actually had a picture of his ship. They do an incredible job for something that I think a lot of people don't think about. I know for a fact that I've come across at least a couple of times, military medals at like tag sales that I went to with my my grandmother or somebody who pulled over to see those uh, while I was driving around. You know, you see them and you don't think about that connection that they might have to someone. And yeah, there are some medals out there that eh, nobody's going to really shed any tears over. You know, if my uh, pistol and rifle marksmanship medals were to disappear from my shadow box, 
eh, whatever, you get the new ones. There are other metals that mean a little bit more. And, of course, there are those that have a very sacred meaning, I think, to most of us in the veteran and military community. And, of course, the Purple Heart is, if not chief among them, certainly right up there. I mean, the Purple Heart, I think you can put nearly on par with the Medal of Honor. Some people might disagree with that. But the Purple Heart means that you were uh, wounded and or killed in action. It means that you gave uh, a lot of yourself. Now, it's very rare to find someone who receives a Medal of Honor without the Purple Heart. And everyone who receives a Purple Heart, of course, does not receive the Medal of Honor. But that Purple Heart, it's a lot more common than the Medal of Honor, the Navy Cross, or you know any of those other big, big medals, uh, the Silver Star even, um, but it just has that special meaning, of course. And the Military Order of the Purple Heart has done a great job uh, promoting you know, what that Purple Heart means and making sure that people understand that the Purple Heart has a very special meaning within the military and veteran communities. And what Zach and the team at Purple Hearts Reunited are doing is truly fantastic. And it's an example of one of those interviews that I've actually gotten to see firsthand, well, I guess secondhand, kind of how it happens. What I mean is a lot of people that I have here on the program that I talk to have great stories, but they're just that. It's a story. It's something that I'm hearing. I'm hearing them tell me about, and I think, wow, that's fascinating. That's awesome. That's fantastic. And that's absolutely true. But with Purple Hearts Reunited, I actually had uh, a return of a Purple Heart, I suppose we should say, a reuniting of a Purple Heart with the family of the one who earned it that I was somewhat involved in, kind of secondarily, and that my mother heard the interview with Zach Fike and then saw in a Facebook group from her hometown of Clinton, Connecticut, someone had found a Purple Heart medal and it appeared that the family was no longer in the town and they didn't know how to find them. No one seemed to know. So my mother reached out to me and then I reached out to Zach Fike. Zach Fike got in touch with the person who had found that Purple Heart medal and was able to locate the family. I mean, within a couple of days, it did not take long. So seeing the work that they do, seeing the, uh, you know, the, the effort that they put into it. And Zach Fike is doing this along with currently serving in the National Guard, as well as serving as, uh, I believe he is, uh, co-owner of a brewery up there as well, one of the founders of a brewery in Vermont, and does the Purple Hearts Reunited thing. I, you know, where does a guy find time to do all of it? Well, he does. Of course, he's not alone. And they've got a lot of people around the country who are working with them. I won't say working for them. It's really a team effort. And they're looking for people who are willing to uh, be involved in the ceremonies of giving those medals back. I highly recommend you check out Purple Hearts Reunited. If you're looking for a really great thing to take part in and a great thing to learn about, Purple Hearts Reunited is right up there as far as uh, the different ways that we can help out our our forebears in the veteran community. All right, taking a look at uh, some of the news out there, we've got a story up on our site by our own Libby Howe, who's going to talk to the Service Women's Action Network coming up in just a few minutes. But this one is about statistical link between military experience and mass shooters. Yeah. This one uh, that took place in California with Ian David Long, it's not the first one. Of course, you can remember back to Major Nadal Malik Hassan. Of course, there are others like Wade Michael Page. You can think all the way back to the University of Texas and the shooting at the University of Texas back in the 60s. He was, of course, a Marine Corps veteran. You know, this isn't new, but it's something that keeps coming up. 
For starters, does the link have to do with access and training with guns? We've had a lot of veterans who have ended up becoming mass shooters, but you don't know exactly why that is, you know? Is it tied to combat service? I mean, there are quite a few who never see combat. Uh, Charles Whitman, the one from the University of Texas uh, uh, Tower up there, I don't believe he was a combat veteran. I know he's a Marine Corps veteran, but I don't believe he was a combat veteran. There are... A lot of discussions that go on around these things. It's not just veterans, but when a shooting like this does happen and it pops up like, oh, U.S. Marine, you know what? That's going to set off some uh, it's going to set off some anger in some people. Our government just training mass killers and blah, 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 blah. Of course, it's not. There are millions of us who serve in the military. And if a few uh, do something horrible, a few turn into monsters. That's not, you know, I don't think it's the fault of the government, the fault of the military for that happening. I think there are crazy people who are going to do crazy things. I think there are also a number of great organizations out there that are helping people who, you know, may have some mental health issues that might push them towards something like this. These organizations are helping them move away from that. Uh, Great work by people like Boulder Crest Retreat, our friend Ken Falk and the team over there. Of course, the VA is doing uh, some important work with this, although the VA also has to answer a lot of questions when it comes to a lot of these people, where the VA was seeing many of them and didn't catch any of the red flags before people turned into, uh, uh, you know, turned out to be monsters. You know, was it something that should have been seen? Could it have been seen? Not always, but sometimes, I, you know, it's, it's just, it's difficult. It's difficult. This Marine doesn't represent all Marines, of course. You know, but there are people out there who, for their own reasons, will try to say that he does try to say that Marines are all cold, heartless killers. And this guy is just another example of it. This one who shot up the college night at a country bar out in California. That's nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. Look, we got Pete Burden checking in and saying hello. Marine Corps veteran, one of the nicest guys I've ever met. Also, uh, a fantastic story of his that we've played for you here on this show before. Stand-up comedian and worked as a police officer at Woodstock. All sorts of cool stuff. You know, it, this is this guy is an outlier. The problem is, I think, in the 21st century, that outliers through the 24-hour media cycle, these outliers are presented as though they are common because you find out about it immediately. They put it up there; it's plastered on the front front pages for days on end and everybody oh yeah marines they're dangerous no they're not the vast majority of them aren't and these studies you know they they put forth a lot of data they put forth a lot of information but they don't put forth any answers there's no definitive answer on why somebody does something like this is it something that was just off in his head see that's the interesting thing with this uh this this last one out in thousand oaks california apparently this guy had some significant issues dating back to when he was in high school There are reports by a track coach at his high school. She says that this guy sexually assaulted her when he was a senior in high school, and she was essentially convinced by the school not to um, report it because it might ruin his chances at getting into the Marine Corps. Yeah, that's why you report things like that, because that's not someone that we need in the Marine Corps. It's not someone we need in any branch of the military service. It's Interesting that there still is this kind of thought out there that people, even people with significant mental health issues and crazy people like this guy apparently was dating back to high school, uh, just put him in the military. That'll fix him. No, it it, it won't. (laughs) 
if people are crazy, going into the military is not going to fix them. Maybe, best case scenario, gives them an outlet for that crazy for a little while, but it's not going to fix what's wrong with them and actually can have the opposite effect, where now this guy was put into a branch of the service where you know firearms qualifications and everything like that are paramount. This is an incredibly important part of being Marine. Every Marine is a rifleman. You know that statement. Of course, they also train with small arms. They train with their uh, the handguns, and that's what was used in this case. I don't know. I don't know. You hear about these stories and these situations, and it's it's too common, even though it is rare. And then it's also too common, even though it's even more rare, that it's a veteran who does this. And when it does happen, you hear about all the red flags that were missed upon the way, and that's, I think, what's most frustrating to me. All of the points along this guy's life where something could have been done. Somebody could have said something. Something was seen. The guy sexually assaults his uh, track coach over a cell phone. Okay, maybe he belongs in jail or prison and not the United States Marine Corps. Would that have stopped whatever happened here? I don't know. I don't know. I do know that the lack of interaction, the lack of interdiction with what this guy was doing and the negative things going on in his life prior to joining the Marine Corps, none of those were taken care of, so we'll never know what could have possibly helped in regards to shutting down a monster. You know what I mean? I do. I know what I mean, but it's sometimes hard <laughs> hard to get it out there just because you know, in these situations it's incredibly difficult. It's not the gun that did it. It's the person that did it. And the person is a Marine, but the fact that he's a Marine isn't what made him do it. But when you have, you know, how many other examples in years past of veterans doing something like this, does it actually mean that their service contributes to it? Impossible to say, truly. Well, there were a lot of great things taking place on Veterans Day this weekend. Hope you got to enjoy The weekend, whether you went out and took part in something or didn't, if you are a veteran or the family of a veteran, you know what? You earned a nice weekend. I ended up sleeping most of yesterday, the actual Veterans Day. A lot of people celebrating it today. Traffic was great for me this morning because I think a lot of people have the day off for Veterans Day uh, in Washington, D.C. But, you know, a lot of great things taking place. We had a parade up in New York City. We're going to talk to Steph Mullen from IAVA. She was up there actually taking part in that parade yesterday. They also had their gala earlier in the week. There was so much going on around the country. It was really great to see. And in the days leading up, it was great to talk to some really well-known, significant veterans about their, well, significant, we're all significant, well-known, notable veterans, I shall say. Those who've been very successful in business. People like JT from Black Rifle Coffee Company. People like Gordon Logan, the founder of Sport Clips, who a lot of people don't even know is a veteran. In fact, he is a Vietnam veteran, C-130 pilot. You know, uh, also talking to Jason McCarthy, who was one of the grand marshals of that parade up in New York City. So many great things taking place on Veterans Day. Of course, uh, everything from free pancakes to a lot of people just saying, hey, thank you for your service or... And getting back to Dan Crenshaw and Pete Davidson here, Dan Crenshaw turned serious at the end of that little uh, jokey segment on Saturday Night Live's Weekend Update saying, you know, he'd rather people say never forget instead of thank you for your service, meaning never forget why the people who are risking it all like Dan Crenshaw did are doing that. And that's something that I think uh, Pete Davidson, who lost his father in the 
terrorist attacks of September 11th. His father was a firefighter in New York City who was killed on that day. Seemed to be something that he certainly agreed with as well. And I kind of like that sentiment. I kind of like never forget as opposed to thank you for your service. Thank you for your service is just kind of vague, you know, a little too vague for me. Thank you for my service. Which part was it while I, are you thanking me as much for while I was doing a radio show in Italy as for when I was in uh, Afghanistan? Are you thanking me as much for uh, when I was, you know, uh, writing newspaper articles in Jacksonville as for when I was out on a ship out of Norfolk, Virginia? I don't know. Thank you for your service is just kind of so vague and has kind of lost all meaning. Never forget. I think it's, it's hard to lose the meaning of that. You know, you know, and there you go. November is Veterans Month, so people could and should recognize veterans throughout the month. And here at ConnectingVets.com, well, it's Veterans Day every day. And you can check out the resources that our team of veterans is putting forth for you each and every day on the website, as well as on social media. We are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. One little click on your mouse or tap on your phone, and you'll be that much closer to living your best veteran life. Coming up on today's show, we are going to talk to Steph Mullen of IAVA again about their parade, about the uh, the great gala that they had taking place up in New York City uh, late last week. We're going to talk to her about a number of items, including, of course, research, statistics, and numbers, because that's what she focuses on for IAVA. And then coming up next, our own Libby Howe is going to talk to the Service Women's Action Network about the latest and greatest items that they are focused on. This is Connecting Vets Daily, and we'll be back right after this. I'm Ellen Herring. I'm the CEO of the Service Women's Action Network. And Dee? And I'm Dee Quaranta with Northeast Florida Women Veterans CEO. I think the first thing that we would love to talk about this morning is the coalition. And you guys had the inaugural um, meeting of the coalition, I think. So what what was that coalition and what, what was it all about? So actually, the the coalition is still forming. Um, We did have an inaugural meeting in September in Atlanta. Um, We'd had a previous meeting back in April of really some groups coming together and talking about forming a coalition. And we said, yes, we think we want to do that. And so in uh, September, we made a pretty large, wide announcement to all women serving organizations and invited them to Atlanta to potentially join this coalition to help us try to get it up and running um, and really launched. So we met um, in Atlanta, 130 uh, women and a few men met there to start or to get organized, essentially. We also had 40 people join us by WebEx. We had a series of working group meetings during uh, the meeting in Atlanta. We had a a leadership and membership committee working group. We had a mission, vision, values, um, and branding working group. And we had a coalition strategy working group. And the result of those working groups was that we now have a mission, vision, um, values, and brand. Although the brand is still being debated. Um, we do have some, some idea about the coalition leadership and membership, uh, how to become a member. And we are working on a strategy right now. Or actually, I shouldn't say we are working on one. We are, that's the next step is that we need to work on a strategy. And so Ideally, um, as we move forward and we come together as a coalition, we identify uh, steering group members, we will develop a strategy for moving forward. Great. And then where did the idea for the coalition come about? 
Sure. So it um, actually came up in two years ago when we were doing a uh, an annual summit that we host, and one of the recommendations as a result of that summit was that we needed to to organize um, to get organized as as one coalition because we're a lot of small disparate groups and we have impact in local areas, but we're hoping to have bigger impact. So it's really an effort to. Um, engage in collective action on the on topics that we all care about and so the coalition organization the organizations that joined the group they were all they were um female veteran organizations right yes well that was just the initial um kind of advisory group that was looking at creating a coalition now um, we've cast the net wide and we're hoping that many organizations will join at this point and they're starting to send in uh, commitment letters and we're asking people to join the steering committee um, to form the steering committee so that we can then you know make steering committee type of decisions about the coalition. Great and then one of the organizations that was part of the coalition was D's organization right that's where you guys well, Dee uh, D, um, was interested in participating in the coalition. She's one of the organizations. She represents one that showed up in Atlanta. Great. Dee, did you want to talk a little bit about um, your organization, where it is, who you serve, and kind of what you do on a day-to-day basis? Well, we're Northeast Florida Women Veterans, and we're located in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, initially, we started out assisting women veterans in the Northeast Florida location, but it seems we're getting calls from all over the state and even sometimes outside of the state because we offer that um, supportive services that uh, we find oftentimes that our women veterans need. Um, So my connection with the coalition, you know, I read about it. Actually, I got the flyer from Elaine Westmeyer here in Jackson, uh, here in Florida, and I was really interested because I've always had in the back of my mind, we really need to unify to have a bigger voice on in, in D.C., um, but also to share information and resources so that we can better assist our women veterans in this country because I think it's such an underserved de- demographic. Um, so I was really, really, and still am, very excited about this coalition um, forming so that we can get to work. Great. And then how, how do people get involved with your organization? How can they support... Northeast Florida Women Veterans? Well, we, we are on the website uh, for, for womenvets.org as well as uh, Facebook. Um, we're always looking for volunteers if, you know, if they're local to come in because we do have a, a, an office here that was donated by the city of Jacksonville so that we could continue the work. Um, And so we're always looking for individuals to come in and help, whether it's with administrative work or some of the food distributions and week of recognition, Women Veterans Recognition Week, whatever is going on, we are always looking for volunteers. And, of course, we could use the funding as well. Great. And then I know that you are facing some financial hardships with the last hurricane. Uh, If you're comfortable talking about that, is there... And I know that um, I talked to Ellen about how some of it has to do with how much time and energy and money you've thrown into this organization as well. <laughs> yeah, you know, we've, we've been in existence for going into seven years now. And, of course, I started out by myself, and I then I had a board. Um, and we've all come out of our pockets quite a bit. And I pretty much dried up all of my personal 
savings to make sure that the organizations stay up and running because I think it's so important for our women veterans who are in need. Um, when Hurricane Matthew came, um, it tore up my roof. And so, you know, it takes time for the insurance companies to, to do what they need to do. So, of course, I've, I had to uh, spend money I really didn't have. And I ended up um, applying for the Florida Hardest Hit Program, which pays your mortgage for a year, and you don't have to pay that back. So they paid the mortgage for a year, and as of last month was the last month, that they uh, paid that mortgage. Well, in between Michael and, and today, Hurricane Irma came. <laughs> so in the midst of me already struggling, uh, my house was flooded. Um, several things were pretty much destroyed. Quite a bit was destroyed. It took the insurance company, again, time to step in and uh, get the funds to do the repairs. And the funds that they provided still really did not uh, repair the house uh, the way it needed to be, but I had to keep the organization going. And I, you know, I spent a good 40 to, to 50 hours a week working with this organization because everyone knows my cell phone. It's a number, so um, there's quite quite a few calls that come even after hours, and I have to go and help a vet or, you know, something comes up. And, you know, people say, well, why don't you just go get a full-time job? Well, that that's not logical when you're running a nonprofit. And the only nonprofit in Northeast Florida that's really doing the work that we do for our women veterans. But, you know, I, I, I know that I need help personally, but I, I can't focus on me when I see these ladies every day walking in this office. Um, my office is all volunteers, the women that come in here, but some of them, you know, they're able to do it without having to go to work. For me, it's critical at this point because, you know, if I don't find the income, uh, I'll probably lose my house. Right. I was talking to Ellen about the situation. We just, we felt like definitely need some recognition that you are handling all of these personal financial hardships and at the same time keeping this this resource for female veterans in Florida afloat, and it sounds like you're doing incredible work, and it's an incredible resource for them. So, just felt like that definitely deserves some recognition that you are handling both of these things at once, and you're doing an amazing job. Can I add well, that um, <clears throat> part of the problem with the nonprofits that support service women is that we get very little funding. Um, right. For, for example, if Dee were able to um, find sources of funding that she could actually then have a personal income and not just do this on a volunteer basis, then she could afford to her mortgage, um, those kinds right. of things. But so many women are doing this because they feel just deeply committed to the, the population that they right. serve. And, and so we do it. For instance, I'm an unpaid CEO at this point. Um, Many of us are doing this. Basically, um, we support ourselves with whatever pension that we get from the military. And in some people's cases, that pension is pretty small. Right. That's correct. Um, D is a retired... Um, Air Force. <laughs> NCO, I believe. Correct, D? Yes, correct. Um, and so she gets a small pension, but it's not enough to, you know, support a mortgage, work full-time for free um, without assuming some kind of... Uh, financial debt. Right. 
and you're both still doing all of this work and it's it's an amazing resource for the female veterans that take advantage of it i'm sure um can we talk a little bit about um kind of going back to the coalition d when you joined the coalition and kind of got connected with all these other organizations that are doing work similar to that work that you're doing in florida what would you love to see come out of that collaboration, that coalition, and the collection of all of these different organizations that are doing great work kind of in the same vein? Well, I, I think uh, Ellen is going in the right direction when, you know, as far as organizing, I don't think we've quite figured out um, how all of this will will drive into that one hub, if you will, um, when when we look at other women veteran organizations out in the U.S., because I don't think we've tapped into all of them yet. And it will take that steering committee and those that are supportive of this coalition to really reach out to them. I'm, I'm in Jacksonville, but in Pensacola, how do we reach them or how do we reach those in Miami? And once we are able to do that, it'll it'll really become a true coalition where we have one voice. And, and that's really what I'm looking forward to. Uh, one voice uh, to speak, and a powerful voice, because we know that there's strength in in numbers. Um, but it'll help. It'll. I, I think uh, our ability to share information and resources so that our women veterans can become successful. That's what I'm looking for. Because really, I feel like I don't really have all the answers. But as I um, just kind of conversate with some of the other women in other states, it's going to help me do my job so much better um, to find out what they're doing and what works for them. What am I doing and what's working for us? Someone may benefit from that in Massachusetts. So that that's what I'm looking forward to. Best practices. Awesome. And kind of in the same vein, Ellen, where do you see the coalition going in the future? So s- several things. So shared resources, um, if we come together and share resources, but also... Um, sharing information. So, for instance, uh, the DAR, Daughters of the American Revolution, uh, recently reached out to me and said, hey, we've got this large bequeath, um, and the woman that bequeathed the money to the organization, actually, I'm not sure if that was a woman or not, um, She, they would like to dedicate that money to homeless women veterans. Um, but they didn't know what organizations out there were supporting homeless women veterans. And I was able to look into the database that we've accumulated and say, oh, here are uh, quite a number of, um, sm- they're always very small, not always, but generally mostly very small, especially when they're supporting um, women veterans. So there will be like the house, in, there's a house in Massachusetts, there's one in Pennsylvania, there's um, a couple here in the D.C. area. They're run by women veterans who have essentially bought homes and established homeless shelters for other women veterans. So what the DAR was looking for, looking at is how do we um, share this money out to all these organizations to support women veterans? And so that's one of the kinds of things, the sharing of resources, the sharing of information, and then to engage in collective action. So, for example, one of the very first things we did in Atlanta was that we had, um, we have a law firm that we work with. Um, They provide pro pro bono uh, support to us, and they drafted a number of letters for us um, to act, uh, things that we want uh, lawmakers to, to do. And we brought those letters to the coalition meeting in Atlanta, and 35 organizations signed on, and then we sent those letters to the lawmakers and to the VA because it was about uh, VA um, not serving women veterans um, 
the way they should. So that was engaging, you know, that was an example of us engaging in collective action at our very first meeting, um, demanding that something be done about those, um, the pro- some problems at the VA. Right. Awesome. And if, if I can piggyback off of uh, Ellen, I was just sitting here listening to her and thinking about the young lady that we have um, in the hotel with her two children. Um, it's not that she can't afford to pay rent or anything, and this is just a scenario of what we have to deal with. Um, she went through a divorce. Her husband was the one that was paying the rent, so it left her in a situation where she could not afford the rent, so she ended up in an extended stay with her two kids. Finding the right resources to help her is very difficult in the immediate area, but there may be some nation, uh, an organization that serves individuals nationwide that might be able to help her maybe get uh, another week in the extended stay or help her with her deposit to move into a location. We, we deal with a lot of women, uh, homeless women veterans here in, the, in Northeast Florida, but I run short of resources many times to, to help them out. So this coalition will really um, benefit us in more ways than one. Awesome. Great. Um, anything else you wanted to add about the coalition? We're going to move. I'm curious about what's up in the coming month for SWAN in general. So before we move away from coalition. Um, I think um, the, I don't I don't have anything else about the coalition. Do, do you? No, no. Great. So what's coming up in the next month for SWAN? Um, so this month we are, well, by the end of this month, we hope to re- release our reproductive um, access report, which is a study that we've conducted this year. Um, we did the survey in the spring and we've been writing the uh, findings up all summer. And we've had the findings reviewed now by some uh, statisticians at Georgetown. And we are going to release the report shortly. Um, the big findings from the report, well, there were two big findings, um, was the very high levels of of uh, infertility of military women and women veterans. Yes. Wow. Above wow. 30%, um, which is much higher than the general population that sits at about 12% infertility. Wow. Yeah. So um, one of our recommend- policy recommendations associated with this report is that, first of all, there needs to be a lot more research done. And the other thing is that in, when women find themselves infertile, there's very few resources, active duty or veteran. It's worse in the veteran community, but even on active duty, if you can't conceive within a year, then where do you go? Who do you turn to? There's only five um, military treatment facilities that handle infertility treatment or IVF in particular. Uh, there's long wait lists at those five locations. If you don't happen to be stationed at one of those locations, then you're pretty much out of luck. Um, right. if, you, if you're lucky enough to be stationed there, and then there are wait lists, um, and there's cost sharing. So many of the women in the research have, have told us that they've paid $15,000 or more for a single IVF treatment. Um, and then if you're in the VA system, they, they farm you out and you have to pay for it there. Wow. So that's definitely a report that we'll want to follow up with next month after it's published. And do you, why why is that rate so much higher? Like, did the research have anything? About well, that our, one of our recommendations, we need to figure this out. DOD doesn't seem to have been overly interested. In fact, when I ask them about the rates of infertility, they couldn't tell us. Um, and then when I ask about why there might be high infertility, again, they didn't even weren't even tracking that infertility might be much higher um, among military women. But when we ask the women themselves, um, why do you think this is? 
a number of them have come back and said they think that it's there's multifold, but they're not sure. But they think that exposures to toxins mm-hmm. during uh, deployments, but also in the course of their jobs. One woman was a fuel handler, and she said her the fuel that she was exposed to directly attribute or is directly related to her infertility. Another woman who was deployed um, wore ill-fitting body armor for long periods of time um, during uh, vehicle movements. She had developed hernias as a result and is now not able to carry a baby to term. So um, poorly fitting equipment, equipment that was designed for men but is just issued to women like body armor um, is another source of potential infertility uh, for women. So toxins, equipment, um, exposures to, but really what we want is somebody to do a serious study to figure out what it is. Um, and then the other problem for women veterans is if you can't establish that your infertility was service connected, the VA won't um, work with you. Right. And it's hard to establish service connection when you don't know why you were um you're infertile. You know, you've served four years, you get out, now you can't conceive. Um, there's no obvious service connection. You weren't blown up, you didn't lose your ovaries. Um, and that's the kind of service connection that they expect to see when there may be some kind of latent service connection you don't even know about. Right, right. That sounds like a very interesting topic. So, definitely something that we'll want to follow up on next month when we meet again. Um, Anything else from Swan? I have a curveball question to throw at you guys, but first, anything else? Um, that's what we're working on uh, right now. I don't know. Dee, are you have any specific projects you're working on? Um, right now, the our Her Total Wellness Program, which is our six-week program, we're trying to get that expanded to the state of Florida. We're just trying to figure out how we can get that program administered since we are a nonprofit and, and you don't have women veterans specific nonprofits throughout the state. So we found it to be a, a very valuable program and relevant, but how do we get it uh, administered, you know, throughout the state? That's, that's really our big project right now. And of course, women veterans recognition, we we're trying to get that approved through Congress, um, just kind of waiting on our congressman to uh, go ahead and write the bill of whatever they need to do to make it a legal uh, observance. Great. And that was a perfect lead-in to the question that I had while I have you both here. Um, Over the past couple of months, I did a lot of coverage on congressional races and the veterans who are candidates for Congress. And now we have most of the results and The number of veterans overall in Congress decreased slightly, but the number of women veterans in Congress increased. And I wanted to ask both of you, what what does that mean? What is that like? And kind of what would you love to see from these veteran females who are now members of Congress, which is huge? Dee, Hmm. do you want to go first? You know, I'm hoping that it's a good thing. (laughs) I'm hoping that it's a good thing. You know, we, you, you can't assume that because a person is a veteran, they're going to be your biggest advocate. Mm-hmm. Um, but but we do hope and pray that, that they do become big advocates for our women veterans' causes. Um, and if that's so, then I see things looking brighter for, for our, our communities when it comes to women veterans. Yeah, I was excited to see the number of women veterans running. I was a little disappointed by the number that actually won. Um, 
Yeah, so we've worked in the past with MJ Hagar out of Texas. She's a SWAN member, um, was a plaintiff in the a lawsuit that we filed um, a number of years ago. Uh, then there was Amy McGrath in Kentucky. We're so disappointed to see that neither one of them, um, mm-hmm. I thought they were really strong candidates, mm-hmm. um, was able to, they were very close races in, you know, long held kind of Republican areas where they are happen to be Democrats. Um, but across the board, I think the number of women veterans uh, running is exciting. And I do think that will have an impact. Um, when you have lawmakers that have that experience, yeah. they're, they're more vested in the, right. the issues or needs of, of military women. And so I, I think it's a very positive. You know, in the number of veterans may have decreased, but as you pointed out, the number of women veterans is going up in Congress. So that's a very positive from our perspective. Awesome. Definitely wanted to get your two cents about that while I had you both here. Uh, Great. Well, that was everything I had this morning. Did either of you have anything else that you wanted to add? Anything you wanted to make sure made it in the show? Um, I did. You know, Ellen uh, was talking about the infertility with our women in the military. And we know that all career fields are open now to to women. Um, and I wonder if the outcome of that research, if we do find that exposure to certain chemicals and things are affecting uh, those women, will that possibly change uh, change change the the law and how we view women in the military being um, in every career field? Maybe they don't need to be. And and. <laughs> I'm not saying that as an opinion as far as I'm just saying that's that's a hypothetically if if uh the problem is what they're exposed to, then maybe we need to readdress that. What do you think about that ellen well i that's interesting because my question is, okay, women are exposed to these and it's causing infertility. What's it doing to men? <laughs> ah correct is, is it yeah, similarly right. causing them um fertility <laughs> problems right. Um, and they've already, so the women that had the most problems in our research were fuel handlers. Women have long been allowed to um, handle fuel as well as uh, chemical. So the women um, have long been in the chemical branch, chemical core, um, doing the kind of work that potentially exposes them to these toxins. The mm-hmm. newly opened occupations, um, infantry and armor, may be actually less uh, dangerous in terms yes, of exposure yes. to um, toxins, but yeah, I'd like to know how fertility is affected, but both impacted for both men and women by the exposure right. to these toxins. Right. Okay. Yeah, definitely something that we'll want to look into because that's fascinating that there's and the fact that there hasn't been a lot of research and a lot of Department of Defense looking into this already. Right. Right. Big. Right. Ellen, anything else that you want to add? Nope. Thank you. Great. Well, thank you both so much for taking the time to talk to me this morning. This was great, super informative, very interesting. And I'm glad that we're able to get this information, these stories out there. Welcome back to Connecting Vets Daily, brought to you by Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day and doing it through a variety of content. We've got benefits for you. We've got information, news. It's all on ConnectingVets.com and on social media, where we are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Our next guest is the person you want to talk to if you want to talk about numbers because they are her jam. She is research director over at Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America, Ms. Stephanie Mullen. Steph, good morning. How are you today? Hi, good morning. Doing great. Thanks for having me. 
We're coming off of a Veterans Day weekend where IAVA had, uh, well, a long weekend, I should say, an extended weekend of activities, including the IAVA Gala that was in New York City on Thursday night, uh, the Veterans Day Parade in New York City yesterday. Uh, give us the overall how everything went for IAVA up in New York. Yeah, first off, happy Veterans Day to all veterans out there. We had a very busy weekend, um, but a really great one. So our IAVA Heroes Gala was on Thursday, and we had a star-studded event with Rob Riggle, Craig Newmark, Jeffrey Wright, Willie Geist, um, all in the in town celebrating IAVA and our mission. And uh, it was just a really great time for celebration. We were able to honor Rob Riggle and Craig Newmark, as well as Jeffrey Wright and HBO for the work that they're doing on behalf of the veteran community and uh, talk about our mission. And, you know, it's our biggest fundraiser of the year. So we got funding for the next year to be able to continue our advocacy, our research and our rapid response referral program and continue to bring the services and advocacy to the veteran community that we are known for. Of course, those people who hear the name Craig Newmark and think, who is that? I'm not quite sure. Or if it sounds familiar, he is the founder of Craigslist, mm -hmm. which, of course, one of the biggest websites out there. If you're looking for something, you can probably find it on Craigslist. How has he gotten involved with the veteran community? Like, what, what, what is he known for as far as getting involved with us? He's just a fantastic person. Uh, and so on Thursday night, he actually gifted IAVA $5 million to oh, continue wow. our mission, which we are incredibly thankful for, and we look forward to partnering with him in the future. Uh, but Military Families and Veterans is one of the four pillars of the Craig Newmark philanthropies, and uh, it's just one of the pieces that he feels very inspired about and uh, motivated to look to and to fund. So we're very thankful for his leadership and his thought. That's going to make a big difference for you guys, I would imagine. $5 million. That's not chump change. That's a big chunk of change. So $5 million, what kind of programs uh, do you expect that kind of money to go towards uh, helping out with IVA? Absolutely. It's absolutely transformational for us. Uh, we hope to just expand and get better at doing the things that we do, right? So our advocacy, our research, and our rapid response referral program to continue to expand those to create the impact that we're known for. Uh, and go from there. So more to follow. Of course, if you look at Craig Newmark Philanthropies, that's his philanthropic organization, quite obviously. The priorities, trustworthy journalism, voter protection, women in technology, and veteran and military families. So those are very big things. And putting his money literally where his mouth is by giving that $5 million to IAVA as an investment. Uh, of course, the Veterans Day Parade. You guys took part in that as well. Now, were you marching in the parade there, Steph? I was, I was, I was helping out with our social media side. So if you go on IAVA.org um, or our Twitter handle or our Facebook, you'll see my face pop up here and there uh, because I was handling some of the photos for us. What was that like? I mean, I've been to the Thanksgiving Day Parade in New York City many times when I was a kid. Uh, I think that's actually the only parade in New York City that I've ever been to, despite growing up pretty close to there. Uh, give us a feel of what the Veterans Day Parade in New York City was like this year. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing. The energy on the ground is fantastic. Just for IAVA members in particular, we do a rally and a breakfast in the morning before we line up for the parade. And it's really great to see hundreds of IAVA members come out and just the camaraderie between everyone and get them rallied up. And we head over to the parade and the parade itself is massive. It runs down um, Fifth Avenue 
about 20 blocks worth, uh, and it's just a really exciting time. It's a dynamic time, and uh, it's a lot of fun. So I'd encourage people to come out next year. We do it every year if you're interested. And uh, check out our Flickr page, flickr.com slash IAVA, if you want to see photos. That is a great thing. And, of course, we talked to a few people that were taking part in it. Jason McCarthy, the founder of Go Ruck, was one of the honorary grand marshals. Uh, my buddy John, who works for NBC, uh, actually works for The Tonight Show specifically. Mm-hmm. He was marching with a veterans group there in, uh, in the Veterans Day Parade. Uh, large crowds along the way for the parade. How would you describe the, uh, the reception that the parade itself got? Yeah, we always have a lot of people that come out and support us and cheer us on. I think this year was a little tough because it was a Sunday. So there were a lot of competing uh, requirements around, you know, Sunday football. It was a little chilly out there. But overall, we had a lot of people lining the way all the way down those almost 20 blocks of Fifth Ave. Wow, that is a good amount of real estate that was covered by that parade and really a fantastic parade. It sounds like from everybody I know who was there. We're speaking with Steph Mullen, Research Director for IAVA. Of course, earlier in the week was uh, something more on the business end as opposed to the fun end when you're talking about the parade and the Heroes Gala. The midterm elections took place last Tuesday. We saw uh, a large number of veterans elected into office. Many freshman members of Congress are going to be veterans. However, it looks like the overall number of veterans in Congress is going to go down. Tell us how you, as a, a research person, and how IAVA as an organization views the uh, the midterm elections and how they might affect the veteran community. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, numbers are my jam, so I came to you with some numbers. <laughs> Expected nothing less. So we had 173 running, about 77 won, although there's still a couple of races that have yet to be called. Out of that, 85 were post-9-11 veterans that ran. 38-1, and that will be, give us 12 new post-9-11 elected Congress people in the new Congress. Um, what that puts us at total is about 93 veterans in Congress, if those other six that have yet to be decided don't pan out to anything, right? That's less than what we have right now in the 115th Congress. I think that, yes, it's a bit... Um, disappointing to see that number go down but overall it doesn't change what we do every day here in dc with iava um the fact that the house of representatives changed from democratic control again that doesn't change what we do our issues are bipartisan um, they are american issues yes they impact veterans but we work across the aisle we work with veterans and non-veterans in congress to get our priorities and get our bills passed when it comes to some of those legislative issues that have kind of been these ongoing battles here in D.C., looking specifically at one like burn pits, which I know is one of the main points that IAVA is working on, do you think that adding uh, quite a few post-9-11 veterans to Congress may give that uh, some more forward movement as they you know, were right there? They saw these things. They know it. They experienced it firsthand. Do you think that that might lead to, uh, in examples uh, or instances like that, some actual movement where we might not have seen it otherwise. I think the personal narratives that people bring to the burn pits issue, to even the suicide and mental health issue are really powerful when we're advocating. And so if you have members of Congress that have personal experience with burn pits and toxic exposures, I absolutely think that will make a difference. And sharing that with the public, sharing that with their fellow congressmen and women, um, I hope that that will be a story that continues to get shared 
again, across the aisle, across veterans and non-veterans and with the public at large. Do you also hope to see more interaction between Congress and the VSOs? I mean, there have been uh, some things where Congress has been pretty great and other things where Congress hasn't really showed up. I can think of a recent flag planting ceremony by IAVA where only one member of Congress actually showed up to that event. Do you have any hope that this uh, influx of veterans into Congress, even though we're seeing the overall number go down, may actually increase the interaction with the uh, the veteran community and the veteran service organizations? Absolutely. I think beyond even just the new veterans coming in, it's a new Congress, right? It's a fresh slate. We're going to have fresh priorities that we'll roll out to Congress. That's what we do with every new Congress. Uh, we're working on our 2018 member survey right now. So Plugging here, if you are an IAVA member and you haven't taken the member survey, please do so. It's in your inbox. Um, but we'll be rolling that out. These are all new opportunities for us to engage with a new Congress. Tell them about burn pits. Tell them about suicide prevention and mental health. Tell them about women veterans and start that engagement fresh in January. Of course, when we talk about the midterm elections, we can talk about some of those uh notable veterans who were elected, including I think five out of six guests that we've had on this show that were running for office, five out of six were elected. So they got that connecting vets bump. Clearly, that was the difference maker. Uh, One of them was Dan Crenshaw. Of course, Dan is a retired Navy SEAL officer uh, known for wearing an eye patch and underneath that, a glass eye with the SEAL trident in it. Lost one eye to an IED in Helmand Province, Afghanistan. Nearly lost the other. They did a breakthrough surgery to save uh, his vision in that eye that actually could have cost him the vision, as he told us. He almost died. I mean, really, uh, it's kind of a miracle that he's still alive. Last week, Pete Davidson, uh, the son of a 9-11 first responder who died uh, during the September 11th attacks on the World Trade Center in New York, made a joke that a lot of people considered in poor taste, You know, taking a shot at, at Crenshaw's looks. The joke itself, I don't think was as big a deal as afterwards when he just ad-libbed, yeah, 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 I know he lost his eye in war or whatever, something like that. Um, This weekend, Dan Crenshaw, not all that surprisingly, made an appearance on SNL. What have you thought about Crenshaw's reaction to this whole thing? Uh, He, of course, responded on Twitter saying, hey, I've got a thick skin, but maybe let's stop taking shots at veterans for war wounds. Uh, And then going on SNL and and, uh, Pete Davidson kind of apologizing to him live on the air and all that stuff. Uh, How did you view the whole situation there from start to finish? I think overall that segment was incredibly well done. I give both Pete Davidson and um, Congressman-elect Crenshaw a lot of credit for going on national television and kind of being the butt of people's jokes and uh, willing to play along with it. Um, It's no surprise, right, that uh, Congressman-elect Crenshaw is brave and has that skin that he's willing to do that. He is a Navy SEAL uh, after all. But uh, I thought it was overall really well done, and I really liked how the segment ended with uh, Congressman-elect Crenshaw just calling for renewed civility, uh, saying that, you know, we can forgive each other. There are some things that go beyond partisan politics. And I thought it was a really great call to action right before Veterans Day. I certainly agree with that. And having spoken to him several times before and having met him and talked to him and all that stuff, didn't surprise me, his reaction to the stuff. He responded as uh, one would expect someone who's a gentleman and has seen everything he's seen before. Uh, Of course, I've also seen people calling out SNL for now normalizing a, I think, white supremacist was one of the things I saw him called. All sorts of interesting political things where everyone that you disagree with is basically the devil. Uh, In this case, 
you know, Dan Crenshaw going on SNL and he and Pete Davidson uh, seeming to bury the hatchet and, of course, taking some shots at Pete Davidson's relationship with Ariana Grande and his current look where he's done that thing that some young folk do where they dye their hair gray or white. I don't get it, but I guess that's because I'm getting old and all you kids should get off of my lawn. That's all that I know. We're here with Steph Mullen from IAVA and... Of course, the biggest piece of news last week, along with, of course, the elections, uh, and and I would say certainly bigger than anything that happened on television, was the shooting in Thousand Oaks, California. Turned out it's a Marine Corps veteran. Turned out he has deployed uh, several times. When something like this happens, which is pretty rare that a veteran does something like this, how do you think we need to look at that? And how is IAVA taking their uh, approach to this horrifying issue? Absolutely. I mean, first off, this is an incredibly tragic event, um, and my heart goes out to everyone that's affected, family members, um, and those that were injured in the attack. However, I think it's really damaging to paint the shooter as a broken veteran, right? That PTSD caused this incident in any way, because quite frankly, it did not. Um, This was a terrible thing that happened. But there are so many other veterans that, first of all, do not have PTSD and do not have mental health injuries that go to war or serve and do not have the mental health injuries that, you know, this particular veteran um, suffered from. Secondly, there are another portion of veterans, uh, many of whom have mental health injuries that seek treatment get treatment and go on to lead happy and successful lives um, and deal with these mental health injuries very effectively. And finally, you know, mental health injuries are incredibly hard and uh, they take a lot out of the person who's suffering with them. And more often than not, the person that is suffering from these mental health injuries is more likely to hurt themselves than anyone else. Um, We talk about 20 suicides a day and, um, while mental health injuries are not always a factor in that, about half the time they are. And so that is something to keep in mind that um, this shooting was a terrible event. uh, And we hope that this never happens again. But uh, to blame it or say that PTSD was the reason for it, I think is just categorically false. It's also uh, come to uh, public knowledge that this guy had issues before he joined the Marine Corps, apparently uh, sexually assaulting a track coach, according to that track coach, who was then talked out of uh, reporting it to the authorities by the school because that could jeopardize him getting into the Marine Corps, uh, as it should have. That's why you report things like that, so that you're not letting uh, you know someone who might already be a problem then be imbued with the knowledge that the Marine Corps can give to them because the Marine Corps didn't have the full knowledge of what happened with this kid uh, who it appears was a problem before he was in the Marine Corps. And that's the other thing that I think people need to look at is, you know, there are crazy people in all walks of life. There are crazy people who look all different ways. There are crazy people from each state, from each country, from each religion, from each race. There are crazy people out there who are going to do crazy things. And the fact that there are millions of Marine Corps veterans who would never, ever, ever even consider doing something like this, all it takes is that one to actually do it. And then, you know, people are then looking kind of side-eyed at the veteran community 
How do you think the veteran community can try to work past that and try to you know, make people aware that, hey, yeah, there are, of course, individuals who are problems, but the majority of us not? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. Um, I mean, first and foremost, let's take a step back and go back to the Thousand Oaks. Should you, one of the victims was also a veteran yep. who was out in the parking lot, who ran into it when he heard gunshots go off. I mean, you have it on both sides of the spectrum, right? That you cannot take away some big overarching, this is all veterans uh, from one incident, right? right. Veterans are a monolith, not a monolithic group. <laughs> veterans are not, not a monolith. monolithic yeah. group. Um, and so I would hope that we talk about Dan, the veteran that died it, that day, um, more so than we talk about the shooter, yeah. because that's what we should be talking about. Uh, also, I think talking about the veterans that serve and go on and lead sex, successful and great lives, um, such as, you know, Congressman-elect Crenshaw, who's going on and has been elected now. He's in SNL and he's being a total gentleman about something that, you know, other people, I don't know if I would have taken yeah. the high road on that one. And he <laughs> did. Telling these great narratives, these great stories um, that are the overarching narrative for most veterans and for most people, I think that's the way to go. It reminds me of having conversations with people who would watch, do you know the show Teen Mom? Yes. Or 16 and Pregnant was the first one, I think, before Teen Mom. People talking about like, oh, this epidemic of teen pregnancy in the country, when in actuality, teen pregnancy levels are the lowest they have ever been in this country. The lowest, but because it's on TV and it's in your face, you think, oh, this is a huge problem. This is happening all the time, when really it's it's not. It's a fairly rare thing. And when it comes to uh, mass shootings in general and mass shootings by veterans specifically, uh, they're, they're very rare too. I mean, yeah, we've had a couple in the past year. We had that uh, lunatic in the Air Force uh, shoot up a church down in Texas. But in that case, much like in this one, where we now have the information about him in high school sexually assaulting a track coach uh, in front of people over a telephone that was taken away from him, apparently, with this uh, the airman down in Texas, he should have been in prison. He had beaten a child severely, caused a concussion, skull fracture, all that sort of stuff, had th made uh, threats to the family that he ended up going after who were not at the church that day. There are red flags, and, and I think a big part of it is the lack of reaction to red flags. If you see someone or you hear someone doing something that's, that's threatening, don't just brush it under the rug. I think that's something we need to take a look at, too. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, our IAVA member survey kind of dives into this. And I will say of those that had ment mental health care suggested to them, 80% sought care as a result, mm. which means if you have a loved one say, hey, I see that you're struggling. I think you need help. More often than not, that person does go and get help. So if you see someone struggling, if you see someone that you think needs help and support, reach out, do those buddy checks. Uh, I think that should be the takeaway that we right. all go forth with. Yeah. And if there's someone who you think is a danger, uh, referring them to whoever they need to be referred to, you know, making a, a note of that might not feel good, but I'll tell you what, it's going to feel a lot better than if you're someone who knew about some of the red flags with this guy who then killed 12 people who'd still be alive if you had maybe said something about it. Interviews with like his, his former roommate who said he was a very strange loner guy didn't expect anything like this, but definitely knew that he was weird. I mean, it's it's 
it's a difficult decision to make. When do you make that uh, that sort of a report on someone? But I don't know. Something it seems that something could have and should have been done, maybe dating back all the way to when he was in high school, that might have prevented this. Maybe not, but it might have prevented this. And with the Air Force, uh, that airman down in Texas that shot up the church, uh, he that that's on the Air Force and uh, the, the criminal investigative services. He should have never uh, gotten out of prison, in my opinion. But anyway, people are going to have their opinions on what's going on with all of these things, including IAVA's membership. And they are, of course, you just mentioned the IAVA survey. That's where you get uh, really the data that you're going to use to come up with what the next course of action is for, let's say, 2019. In this case, is the survey done? Is it still going on? What's what's the status of the survey? It's still going on. You can still take it. So if you are an IAVA member, um, it'll be in your inbox. We sent the last email uh, 10 24. But if you are not a member and want to take the survey, it's IVA.org slash hashtag join. You sign up to join and you'll get an email in your inbox with a link to take the survey. And joining IAVA is pretty easy and it's pretty inexpensive. I would say less expensive than just about any other veteran service organization out there, right? It Yes, absolutely. It is free and it'll take you about one minute to sign up. One minute to sign up. And then for the survey, now I know you're the person who's going to be digging through the numbers on the survey and, and crunching the numbers and parsing them and doing all the things that you do with numbers. Mm-hmm. How long does the survey take and what sort of questions can people expect to, to be answering on the survey? Great question. It depends on who you are is really the short answer to it. Um, there's a lot of survey logic built out into it, which means that if you answer yes to a question, you might get five more. Whereas if you answer no, you skip those ones. It'll take you anywhere from 20 to 30 minutes, give or take. And uh, your questions are going to be anywhere from deployment to education, to your general health and well-being, to transition experiences and um, everything in between. And if people are interested in joining IAVA and then taking part in that survey, how do they go about doing that? IAVA.org slash hashtag join. Fill out the information right there. You'll get an email in your inbox with a link to take the survey. And of course, as a member of the leadership team at IAVA, sell me on the organization. Why should a veteran join IAVA? What do you think is the biggest benefit for them? First off, membership is free. So we are asking for nothing other than your support. And, uh, you know, IAVA works for the post 9-11 generation. We're focused on the newest generation of veteran. However, we support all eras of veterans and we listen to our members. We base our advocacy, we base our programs off of what our membership needs. I'd say we're one of the only VSOs to do so in the manner that we do so. And so uh, if that's something that you feel speaks to you, I would encourage you to join. We've been speaking with Stephanie Mullen, Research Director for IAVA. And if people are interested in getting in touch with IAVA about their programs and and wanting to look into that research and let you guys know about anything else, how do they go about doing that? Same thing, just the website and social media? Everything is online, IAVA.org. On Facebook, it's facebook.com slash IAVA.org. And on Twitter, we're at IAVA. But if you have specific questions, feel free to send us an email. It's info at IAVA.org. Well, there you go. All the information that you need to know, and there it is right there to find out about IAVA, which again is free for you to join. You've been listening to Connecting Vets Daily here on Intercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Thank you so much 
for joining us for today's show. And we hope you join us again tomorrow. We'll be here with more great interviews with newsmakers in the veteran community and, of course, a look at the top military and veteran headlines of the day. Our thanks to the Service Women's Action Network and, of course, Steph Mullen from IAVA for joining us on today's show. Hope you had a great Veterans Day weekend. And I know a lot of people are kind of celebrating Veterans Day today. A lot of people getting Veterans Day off today. Not us. We're jealous. But still, hope you have a great day and we'll see you again tomorrow morning. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 